Friends, it's so great to see so many of you. This is the most I've seen in person since, well, since Easter. La. Okay, but before Easter, uh, we, we, it was probably about half of this. And so it's so good to see so many of you. Uh, apologies in advance if I don't recognize you because I only see your eyes and I haven't seen you for two years. So, uh, but it is good to be able to worship together in the house of the Lord. I just want to emphasize that the reason why we come together uh, to worship together is not about the building, okay? It's not about, you know, the, 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 the four walls, but it's about the people, okay? And church is about the body of believers. And there is that dimension, the physical dimension of connecting uh, that we don't experience online. If you've been joining our services online, you know there's very little interaction, right? So it's, it's great that you're, you're back in person and we continue to encourage those uh, who can safely do so. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we want to thank you for this morning. We thank you for another opportunity to look at your word, to listen from you, and to also have a chance to respond the right way that we might be transformed into greater Christ-likeness. And so, Father, I pray that we would be found faithful, me in the words that I preach and uh, the rest of us in the way that we listen. Lord, may we be malleable in your sight. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, wrong one. This is last week's one. <laughs> yeah, okay. How many of you enjoy doing jigsaw puzzles just a quick show of hands any of you like doing jigsaw puzzles okay a couple okay can you really sort of figure out what sort of personality you have uh, but generally when when you uh when you're starting a jigsaw puzzle the general there's a sort of strategy to it right you don't just blindly uh, smash all the pieces and then you randomly go and pick a piece and put uh, doesn't fit and then you go and pick another piece uh, doesn't fit you, there's a strategy where you look at the whole picture, the completed puzzle, right? You look at the back of the box or, or whatever it's supposed to be. And then you try to find the pieces along the edges, right? Where the, the, it doesn't look identical to so many. So you, you eliminate uh, some possibilities. And then once you're done with the edges, you try and put obvious patterns together. I think la, I'm not a puzzle master, but there, there are some general strategies to it. But sometimes, especially if it's one of those thousand and one pieces or whatever, uh, you look at the piece and you have no clue how it fits into the overall puzzle, even if you have the entire picture. Right, you have the whole picture of, let's say, I don't know, it's a frozen puzzle. Okay, that's Elsa. Okay, and she's, ah, let it go. Okay. And then you see this little blue piece and you're like, there's so much blue, where does it go, right? And so it, it, you, you need to eventually wait and be patient for the various pieces to fall into place before you start recognizing how they fit, right? To see the whole picture. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and 16 that we've already looked at earlier, the completed puzzle is actually, uh, actually already shown to us. 
we know from 1 Samuel chapter 15 and 16 that King Saul has been rejected by God and God has already chosen somebody else, David, anointed in order to replace him. Okay, so we already have the, the, the complete picture. But between chapter 15, 1 Samuel has uh, 31 chapters. Huh? So between chapter 15 and chapter 31, we don't know where the pieces uh, fall in place immediately at chapter 15. And so we see a progression. The various puzzle pieces slowly drop into place. And then we start seeing, oh, that's how... Saul lost his kingdom. That's how David rose to the throne. And so today's passage is part of a larger portion of scripture that talks about how Saul starts to turn on David. But for today, I want us to zoom in on one specific trait of Saul that set him off on this path to destroy David. And that is his jealousy. Now, the word jealousy can be used in a good way or a bad way, right? Uh, God is described as jealous, and that's not in a bad way, okay? When, when we describe God as jealous, it's not the, the, the ugly, sinful kind of jealousy. His jealousy is more a desire for faithfulness from his people, to have them worship him and only him because it rightly belongs to him. It's a little bit like the sort of jealousy that a, a husband may feel if somebody is trying to harass the, the wife and making you know, uh, romantic advances uh, when, when they're really promised to each other. Okay? It's different uh, when, when the, the jealousy manifests itself in a sinful way. Okay? So if there is rage, uncontrollable uh, paranoia fear possessiveness and all that uh, then all that is like you know sin starts creeping in but the general premise is that they belong together and so uh, they do have a right to be jealous for one another okay so that's that's the sort of uh, jealousy that god has without the the sinful part okay so that is uh, jealousy in the good sense but the word jealousy when we hear the word jealous, immediately we feel, this is, this is bad, right? Uh, this is not good. And so, more commonly, we use the word jealousy in a bad way. We, uh, it, we, we use it to mean being envious, you know, coveting, wanting something that we don't have. Okay? Wanting something for ourselves that we don't already have. And that is the sort of jealousy that I mean in today's context. Okay, so that's, that's my English lesson for today. Lah. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's the sort of jealousy we'll be talking about. Uh, let me just quickly try to, to get an alternative method for the slides up. Okay, just in case this works up. Huh?
okay, it's plugged in. If the magic happens, it happens. Okay, coming back to today's passage, the takeaway message for today is, so now you need to listen to pay attention because you can't read. Huh? Uh, the takeaway message for today is that we can overcome sinful jealousy by being content, secure, and having faith in the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Okay, let me... Huh, okay, yeah, so puzzle piece, huh? Okay, jealousy. Okay, so we can... Uh, ah, okay. We can overcome sinful jealousy by being content, secure, and having faith in the Lord. Okay, so that's our takeaway message for today. So first, let's look at some of these factors that contribute to Jealousy, at least in Saul's case. Let's look at Saul's dissatisfaction, his discontentment. Now, before we, we go straight to the incident that caused Saul to be so jealous, we need to look at the background of this setting. And we need to remember where Saul is at this point of this incomplete puzzle. Okay? This is still early on. We can't see the whole picture. Where is Saul? Now, Saul doesn't know about how Samuel anointed David, okay? We know as the readers, but Saul does not know about what happened in chapter 16, okay? So all Saul knows is he was anointed as king, he was king, uh, and then Samuel told him that God had rejected him as king, okay? And then he has continued on being king knowing that he's already been rejected by God. That is where he is. First uh, Samuel chapter 15, verse 28, Samuel, the prophet Samuel, says to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. So this is after uh, Saul disobeyed God, right? And he, he didn't carry out his commands to destroy uh, everyone that he was supposed to destroy. And so, as a result, God rejected him as king, and Samuel proclaimed this prophecy. Okay, so this is the end result, okay, the, the, the picture at the end. But from this moment on, from the moment that Saul knew that he was rejected by God, not only would he have been discontented with his life because he's now a king without God's blessing, not just that he's wondering whether he has God's blessing. He knows he doesn't have God's blessing. He knows he's been rejected. But he, he would also have been very paranoid at this point. He would have been constantly looking over his shoulder because somebody is going to replace him as king. Samuel said so. God said so. He was going to be replaced. And so he's constantly trying to watch who is going to replace me. Who is this person who will finally come and replace me? Uh, if you remember, when Samuel was going to anoint David, right? he was about to travel to Bethlehem and anoint, 
anoint David. Uh, Samuel was afraid that Saul would kill him if he heard how he was going to go to Bethlehem to anoint uh, one of Jesse's sons. And so it seems like Saul was determined to hang on to the kingdom even if God was no longer with him and he would even resort to violence to do so. Now Saul also might have expected to have his kingdom overthrown by somebody else by force. Okay, so he, he may have uh, expected that someone was going to assassinate him and take over his kingdom. Right? This is not uncommon among the kings of that day. So he would have been very much on his guard against those who might try to take the kingdom from him. But God had his methods to maneuver David into a position to eventually succeed Saul as king. We see in chapter 16, verse 14, uh, that an evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. Okay, I, I wanted to quickly address this because we will come across it in today's passage as well. Now, some of us might be wondering, why is God sending evil spirits to torment Saul? Why is God sending evil spirits in the first place? Okay, but let's get something straight. Firstly, God is not the source of evil. Okay, God himself is not evil. He is not the source of evil. Okay, James chapter 1, verse 13 tells us that God tempts nobody with evil. Okay, so he is not the source of it. Evil comes from mankind's sin. Evil comes from the devil. Okay, so those are the sources, not God. And yet, God is sovereign over everything, meaning that even evil is under his control. And so we do know that God still allows evil to happen in this broken and sinful world. That's why evil happens around us. Sometimes he allows evil to happen as a form of judgment. So if we look in the book of Judges, uh, we see that when the people of Israel began to lose, uh, began to uh, forget God, worship other idols, uh, break the covenant that he made with them, he would send judgment. He would allow the surrounding nations to oppress them, basically allow evil before they repent. Okay? So he, he did allow evil to happen, like in the book of Judges. Sometimes he allows evil to happen for ultimately good purposes. Okay, so if you remember last year, we were looking at Genesis. Uh, so many chapters about Joseph and that recurring theme that God's providence was always there, that God was always in control and he always intended all this evil that Joseph went through for good purposes. Okay? Uh, and so we also see that in his promise to us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, all right, that he works everything out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So we keep that in mind. Okay? God is not the source, but he allows evil. Now, this evil spirit might be an actual evil spirit, as we understand, so fallen angel, spiritual being, or in other translations, it's a distressing or a tormenting spirit, okay, which might be symbolic of a psychological or physiological condition. So, some scholars suggest maybe it's a type of anxiety attack, or it's 
depression or a fit of rage or even insomnia. You know, maybe, maybe it's just something that just really, really bothered Saul. Maybe it was his own guilty conscience. You know, we don't know. We don't know for sure. But whatever this spirit is, God was not the source of it. But he did allow it to torment Saul. Now, as a result of God allowing it and Saul being tormented by this spirit, whatever it is, Saul's servants recommended for Saul to bring David in to play the liar for him. So at this point, uh, David has nothing to do with Saul or his kingdom. Saul doesn't know who this fellow is. Okay? And then they recommend, they, they uh, introduce David to play the liar for him. A liar is like an ancient harp. Lah. Okay, it's not an instrument of deception. And so David becomes one of Saul's armor bearers. Basically, he's a servant of the kingdom. He becomes one of Saul's, um, you know, the, the people who work in his kingdom. And so that puzzle piece falls into place and it sets the scene now for David to be in the picture of Saul's life in the picture of the immediate kingdom of Israel that Saul is uh, working within. Now, Brother Chong Jin shared last week about that famous, uh, famous battle between David and Goliath. And for David, that catapulted him into military celebrity status. Okay? He's gone from unknown shepherd boy to hero of Israel, slayer of giants, and we know, and David knew, that God was the one who was responsible for you know, David's success over Goliath. But for the rest of the people of Israel, all they know is an underdog led them to defeat one of their most feared enemies. So this guy, this underdog must be a great guy, right? People love an underdog story. And so... The people sang his praises, Saul got jealous. And this would have put David on his radar as possibly being the one who would replace him. So when David was called into Saul's service to play an instrument for him, he's no threat. Now that he has slain Goliath and people are singing his praises about how he, uh, all his military accomplishments, Saul is starting to take notice. In 1 Samuel 18, verse 8, Saul says, What more can he get but the kingdom? And so he's not just jealous of David. He now has this suspicion. Maybe this is the guy who will take over the kingdom. Maybe this is the guy who will replace me. Maybe he will backstab me and assassinate me. Maybe. Hmm. Now, friends, at this point, you can see that it's not only that Saul is troubled and tormented. He's also obviously not content with who he is and what he has. He's been rejected by God. He is a king ruling without God's blessing in a nation that is supposed to be centered around this God. And when Saul becomes jealous of David's reputation... He no longer is content with the reputation that he has, by comparison, at least according to, to what he thinks. 
Now, two quick lessons that we can learn from this. Firstly, that we can, if we can find true contentment in what God gives us and who we are in Him, we don't need to be consumed with wanting what we don't have. Okay. And that is one part of envy and jealousy. When we are envious and we're jealous of someone uh, and we, we, we feel this jealousy and this envy, part of the reason is because we are not content ourselves. We are consumed with wanting what we don't have. And so because we don't have it, we feel that jealousy. But the second part is making comparisons. When we compare ourselves with others, we usually compare upwards, right? Unlike Malaysia, we, we like to compare downwards. But usually we, we, will, we will compare upwards, we will look at people who are richer than us. We will look at people who are more talented than us, people who are more successful than us. And if we con constantly make comparisons with those who have more, who are better, we will always come to the conclusion that we don't have enough, that we are always not good enough. And so friends, we need to learn to be content with what we have and who we are in Christ. Okay? Not to the sense that we become complacent and idle and we are content with, uh, with, with where we are if God wants us to grow or stretch in a certain direction. No, not that kind of contentment but content with the good things that God has given to us to fill our needs, the, the good way that God has created us to be as a person with our unique personalities, spiritual gifts, and all that. We need to be content with what we have and who we are in Christ without constantly comparing ourselves with others. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, we know that you know, Paul teaches us being content in the Lord is true profit. The context of this is about money, yeah? okay, compared to pursuing worldly riches. But the same applies to our whole life situation. It is great gain to us, it's a great profit, a great blessing for us to find contentment in God without always needing to be chasing more. And so I want us to uh, just... Leave, leave us here in order to pause and reflect on our first question. And those of you at home, you may want to discuss with those around you. Is there anyone, uh, sorry, is there anything that you're currently discontented with right now? And if there is, what do you think God wants you to do about it? Okay. And for the kids, do you look at what other kids have that you don't? How does that make you feel? Okay, let's spend two minutes reflecting on this.
Now let's come back to Saul. His jealousy is not only rooted in his discontentment with his own life and comparing himself with David, it's also very much rooted in his insecurity. Now we've established many times before, Saul is a very insecure person that is part of his character. He wanted his subjects and soldiers to look up to him and see him as a strong leader. He also set up a monument in his own honour and disobeyed God so that he can appease his men with the spoils of war because he was afraid of his men, so he wanted to please them. After he was rejected as king, his insecurity only got worse because now he wasn't good enough to be king in God's eyes. And so that's perhaps the ultimate insecurity. Uh, you see, in the ancient world, uh, so, so looking at, at the context of, of today's incident, uh, in the ancient world, celebrating the homecoming of a victorious king was very common. Right? And people, the, the women would go out and sing and dance, celebrate, yay, the king has returned from the battle, successful. So this is after the defeat of Goliath, and now they have started, uh, they have made several campaigns and missions to defeat the Philistines. Okay, so they, they're getting victories over the Philistines. And so it's common to celebrate the victories, but usually kings and not the soldiers would receive credit for the battle. They would sing about how great the king is, right? They won't sing about a particular soldier. But in David's case, the women sang that Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, let me just explain this a bit. It seems like a very weird thing for the women to sing, right? Uh, if you are in the service of a king, you know that he's the one that dis usually deserves all the credit and whatever. Why would you go and, you know, say, uh, he, he, can, he, killed ten, uh, he killed a thousand people, but this armor bearer killed 10,000 people. Better, right? Uh, but the women were not trying to put their king down. Okay, what was happening here is that this is a common poetic device. Okay, it's a form of poetry back then, Hebrew poetry, where they put two similar ideas together to make a point. Okay, and this is known as a parallelism. Say that 10 times fast. Parallelism. <laughs> okay, uh, it is a type of parallelism parallelism where you put two parallel ideas so these are ideas that go together they are not contrasting ideas okay two parallel ideas that go together but they emphasize one singular point other places in the bible also use this technique specifically the uh, the the same one that is used in our passage today for example Psalm 91 verse 7. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Okay? It's not putting the ten thousand against the thousand. It's not comparing. It is emphasizing that uh, so many, 
so many may fall at your side and your right hand, but it won't come near you. Micah chapter 6, verse 7, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for sale of my soul? So again, it is not an opposing idea. It is making the same point. It is emphasizing the point. Even Shakespeare uses it. Okay, so this is from The Merchant of Venice, Act 3, Scene 2. A thousand times more fair, ten thousand times more rich. So, again, emphasizing a point. So, for the women of Israel, they were not comparing David to Saul. They were probably crediting Saul with wisdom for choosing David to lead whatever missions that he had sent him on saying that, wow, what a great team this is. Saul is great. His kingdom is great. Okay? But Saul took it as a statement of his inferiority. Okay? He probably took it at face value, even though this is a known literary device. Huh? He took it at face value to mean, huh? You're saying that David is 10 times better than me in battle. Huh? David is 10 times greater than me. Huh? And he became extremely jealous. Now Saul also came to recognize that God was with David and not with him. And so this would, uh, this would have been confirming more and more about what Samuel had said would already happen. And so after David had slain Goliath and had been successful in different military campaigns, he came, Saul came to see God is with David, God is not with me. And so, this must be the guy who is going to take over my kingdom. First uh, Samuel chapter 15, verse 28 says that the kingdom would be torn from him and given to a neighbor who is a fellow Israelite. And it is someone better than him. So this is a key message for Saul that whoever is replacing him is better than him so you can see how Saul's insecurities are surfacing because although jealousy comes from not being content with who we are and what we have if we are jealous in a way that resents the success of others usually that tends to be due to our own insecurities when we can't be happy for others who do well, it's because their success makes us feel like we are failing. Their success makes us feel that you know, they are better and we are worse. In Saul's case, each of David's successes due to the Lord being with David was a reminder that the Lord was no longer with Saul. His kingdom would not endure. There is a better king to replace him and so all these insecurities are there. But really, if you look, if you, you, you uh, condense, no, not condense, if you distill, uh, if you distill insecurity down to its root, it really is pride. Pride is what is behind our insecurities, the desire to make ourselves feel like we are better than we really are, having other people look at us like we are better than we really are. And so, if 
ever you find yourself getting grumpy, getting angry, when someone else has a reason to celebrate, you know, that's, a, that's a, a, an indicator that it's a good time to stop and you know, ask God, what's happening? Why am I feeling this way? Instead of just following the, the emotion, right? Why am I feeling this way? Does it have something to do with my pride, perhaps? Furthermore, we do not need to feel insecure. We have an advantage over Saul. Uh, we know a lot more about what happens in the big picture of scripture and everything. Uh, but we do not need to feel insecure. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. God didn't make any mistakes when he created us. We are worth so much to God that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die for our sakes. That is how important we are to him. And as servants of God, we don't need to try to seek the approval of men. We only need God's approval. These are all biblical principles that are taught. Now let's pause for our second question. What is one area of your life that you might feel insecure about? How can you find security in the Lord? And for the kids, are there times when you feel when you don't feel good enough and when? And I want to encourage the parents to help to affirm them according to how God sees them at that point. Okay, two minutes. Okay, let's move on to our last point. How Saul's jealousy was not just rooted in discontentment or his own insecurities, but also fueled by his fear. 
I remember how Saul and his army quaked in fear in 1 Samuel chapter 13. They were facing a huge uh, Philistine army, as numerous as the sands on the seashore, uh, because Jonathan had gone and poked the, <laughs> poked the hornet's nest, right? And so they all came out, and then Saul and all his troops were, ah, we cannot. And so that was one display of his fear. Uh, also remember how Saul felt pressured to offer the burnt offering out of fear, just as his men were deserting him. And so just as how Saul's insecurity is a recurring theme for him, Saul's fear is also a recurring theme. And after the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, along with his insecurity, his fears grow. Now that Saul saw David as a threat to both his ego and his kingdom, his fear caused him to lash out, to try to remove the threat. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 10 uh, shows us that the day after Saul heard the women sing that song that made him feel so inferior to David, that evil spirit from God that we looked at earlier, once again came upon Saul and David, you know, doing his duty, his barred duties, was trying to make Saul feel better, playing his lyre, uh, while Saul was prophesying in his house. Okay, uh, I, I need to quickly address this. Why on earth is Saul prophesying, <laughs> right? When the, the Spirit of God had departed from him, uh, he was obviously not in right standing with God at that point. Why is Saul prophesying? Well, the Hebrew word used here actually means to be like in a prophetic trance. And while it is translated uh, as you know, to prophesy in most passages, it's also used to describe false prophets uh, when they were raving. Okay? So that's probably the meaning here in this context, that Saul was raving and out of control. Okay? Probably with rage or, or something, because he's thinking about these women singing that David is better than me, and then now David is here, who do you think you are, better than me, ten times better, and then he you know, lost control. And so, while David tried to help, Saul grabbed his spear, tried to throw it at David, not just once, but twice. Okay, so maybe he tried, and then David is like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, no, not dude, lah. Uh, boss, <laughs> boss, what are you doing? Are you okay? And then, Saul tries to stab him again. And both times, David manages to avoid it. And so for Saul, this is probably more confirmation, you know, that God is with David and not with Saul, protecting David. And so as we saw earlier in, in chapter 18, verse 12, Saul's response to this uh, episode was fear of David. Even though he is the one who tried to murder David in the first place, he became afraid of David. Now, since Saul was now afraid of David, he tried to get him eliminated another way, by having him die in battle. But Saul's plan backfired. You know, he, he gave him command over a thousand men, uh, let him lead them in the campaigns, hopefully that the, you know, the Philistines would, would kill him in battle, wipe him out. 
but his plan backfired because God was with David in every battle. And that caused his fame to rise. It earned him the love and respect of their troops and the people of Israel. And so, these are more puzzle pieces falling into place. This puts David in a very strong position to become king because he's not just an unknown shepherd boy. He's not just some unknown bard. He is now a commander of Saul's armies. He's leading them to victories. And so all these puzzle pieces start falling into place, making him an even bigger threat to Saul. Now later, Saul would try to get David uh, killed by making him take even greater risks, saying that, you know, uh, prove your bravery, that sort of thing, uh, as a, setting as a condition in order to get his daughter's hand in marriage. By the way, David already won that right by defeating Goliath. Uh, the, the daughter of the king's hand in marriage was already promised to the person who would defeat Goliath. Right? And so eventually, David would marry the daughter of Saul and that just made David even more suitable for the throne because now he's related by marriage. And so all this is coming together. Saul is finding it very, very, very more, much more difficult to get rid of David because... He still craved the approval of the people. He still wanted to be seen as a good king. And the people had come to love and respect David. So the more Saul tried to remove David, the more David was in a better position to take the throne. And the more Saul feared him. Now let me also point out here, at no point did David ever indicate that he wanted to take the throne from Saul. If you look at the, the further chapters to come, uh, David has many opportunities to kill Saul and naturally the, the throne will come to him because he was already in such a great position to take it. He already knew that he was anointed. But he did not use those methods because he believed Saul was still the Lord's anointed. He probably was waiting for Saul to either resign, pass the kingdom over, or you know, die of old age, and then he succeed. And so all this goes to show that Saul's fears were completely unfounded. All these fears that Saul had were not based in reality. Although Saul's undoing was foretold earlier, he already knew that you know, the kingdom would be taken from him, given to another until he reached that point, he was his own worst enemy. Saul was the one who was actively fulfilling his own downfall, ultimately fulfilling God's plans for David and the kingdom of Israel. And so friends, fear is a real and powerful thing uh, because as fragile and imperfect human beings on our own, we are often very weak and powerless in many situations. Uh, for example, if you're in a jungle surrounded by wild animals that can tear you apart and you don't have anything to defend yourself with, fear helps you to survive. You don't go and pet a tiger, right? But fear can also be very deceptive because it can make something seem so scary that it paralyzes us or it pressures us into making foolish decisions and we see this happen with Saul. The Bible is full of exhortations 
for us to not fear, to be strong and courageous. And the common reason for why we don't need to fear is not because, you know, be strong and courageous because you are actually very strong. Be strong and courageous because you are actually very powerful. You just need to think positively. No, that's not the reason. The Bible always tells us that we don't need to fear because God is with us. The God we follow is stronger and more powerful than anything that can ever threaten us. Saul tried to address his fear by trying to remove what was causing it in the wrong ways. And all that did was compound his fears more and more. But for disciples of Jesus, our antidote to fear is always faith. Faith in God. Not trying to make ourselves more strong and more powerful or trying to remove the threat, but our immediate antidote is always faith in God. Like a scared child running to their parent for safety. That should be our response to the things that scare us. We run to God first. And then maybe he tells us, you know, you need to uh, grow a spine. or <laughs> you, you need to uh, do this to remove the threat in a, in a good way. We run to God first. Now let's look at our last question for today. What is one fear that you have? What is one step that you can take to exercise your faith in God in this area? And for the kids, is there something you're afraid of? What's something you can do to help you remember that God will protect you? Okay, two minutes. In conclusion, 
Know that we can overcome sinful jealousy by being content, secure, and having faith in the Lord. Friends, if you struggle with any form of jealousy or envy, these three things are areas to look at. Contentment, security, faith in the Lord. And so I'd like you to be content and secure in the Lord. Know that He made no mistakes when He created you, and your home is not here. Your home is in eternity with Him. And do have faith in God in the face of fear. Let your reflex, your instinct, be running to God when you are scared. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.